to the A Sound Effect podcast, the podcast about sound effects. My name is Aspen Andersen, and I'm the founder of asoundeffect.com. And I'm Christian Halske, founder of Hertz & Bits Sound Effects. So, can you tell us a bit about who's on the show today? Right. For this episode, Jennifer Walden spoke to four-time Oscar-winning supervising sound editor Richard King, not once, but twice. First about his work on Christopher Nolan's Tenet, and then the uh, Patty Jenkins film Wonder Woman 1984, which King also worked on, together with supervising sound editor Jimmy Boyle. So we get to hear about how King used sound to help the understanding of reality versus inverted reality in Tenet, as well as the work that went into Wonder Woman's lasso. That sounds really good. And uh, before we get to that, let's have a quick listen to some of the new releases from the Soundfix community. Yeah, this time I have taken a look at some wind recordings from Death Valley, a couple of abstract design element types of libraries, and uh, last but not least, a so-called gore and combat FX toolkit. Desert Winds, Death Valley in Winter by Sky River Sound features sounds of the harsh desert being carved by winter winds, as well as sounds of life such as wetland birds. Dark Future by PMSFX is a collection of dark futuristic sound effects, perfect for cutting trailers, sound design, cutscenes, and more. Brutality by Audio Shade is a gore, combat, and weapon effects toolkit packed with the most gruesome and hard-hitting effects that are guaranteed to make all audiences squirm. Monochrome by Sample Tracks and Julian Caras is a sound library for composers, sound designers, and experimentalists, fusing a rough electronic aesthetic with film and trailer sound design for a unique set of modern sonic tools. Next up is an interview with supervising sound editor Richard King about his work on Christopher Nolan's Tenet. Hey, this is Jennifer Walden for Sound Effect, here to talk about the MPSE-nominated sound effects editing work on both director Christopher Nolan's film Tenet and director Patty Jenkins' film Wonder Woman 1984. So what do both of these films have in common? It's four-time Oscar-winning supervising sound editor Richard King at Warner Brothers Sound, who was the recipient of the Motion Picture Sound Editor's Career Achievement Award in 2016. 
So we're starting this talk off with Tenant, as director Nolan and Richard have a long successful history of filmmaking. King earned three of his Oscars on Nolan's films, Dunkirk, Inception, and The Dark Knight. And all seven of their films together, including the recent one for Tenant, have earned MPSE noms. Two of them, Inception and The Dark Knight, took home the win. If you've seen Tenet, you know it's a complicated film that mixes reality with inverted reality. Sometimes people are moving backwards through time. And to understand what's happening, the audience needs to know which direction through time the characters are traveling at any given point. That was something that the sound team helped with immensely. But representing an inverted POV required more than just playing sounds backward. Because... Would we really hear a backward sound in our forward-moving reality? Well, that's what Richard is going to help clarify in this chat. Richard, thank you so much for joining me. So, Tenant, wow, what a heady film. They just legalized marijuana here in New Jersey, but I wish they would have done it sooner because maybe that would have helped when I was watching this film back in December. Yeah, I don't know if that would have helped. Psychedelics would have been better. It's funny <laughs> that the movie has a lot of basis in theoretical science. Chris did go to great lengths to run the physics of the story by people who know about such things and why while there is obviously a lot of invention. We really tried to not just put in sounds because they sounded cool or weird, but to really try to think about what might be the physics of the way sound is propagated in an inverted world. And that was fun, just to kind of pretend to be a physicist and take that approach to it. And it did give us kind of a framework to work in, I think, rather than just make it a free-for-all. Gave us a direction and a structure in which to think about what sounds to use. So how did you discover this process of what these inverted sounds should be? Or what were the rules that govern how the inverted sounds are handled? We dealt with them really as forward sounds that were manipulated to sound reversed, if that makes any sense. Um, for instance, Foley sounds were done in such a way that they're recorded in forward motion. We tried in one of the fights to record the Foley both directions. We inverted the image so the foley walkers could walk the inverted character and then they walked the not inverted character and we put them together but the reverse sounds just sounded silly and sounded like a cheap audio trick that is very recognizable as a backward sound and it didn't seem like we would hear in our non-inverted world backward sounds we would hear forward version of whatever was happening with the inverted car or the inverted person or whatever like the dialogue is pretty much simply reversed yeah that's one of the things i noticed about the sounds uh they didn't just sound like you reversed everything um also when you just simply reverse a sound sometimes it doesn't sound the way that you want it to or it actually just sounds like a forward motion sound so yeah i was very interested to like figure out how you handled these inverted sounds. We had to come up with some other formula because, for instance, a backwards gunshot has no impact. It has a transient at the beginning, so it's not impressive at all, or it doesn't sound like a gun. It's just a decayed sound that then rises up to a crescendo briefly and then stops. So 
that didn't work. So we tried approaching it or thinking of it as if what we're hearing in our normally traveling world, forward-facing world, is sounds in our environment that were made by this inverted object or this inverted gun. In other words, it's recognizing whose point of view that we're in and applying the physics of that point of view to what we hear. So when the protagonist, for instance, is inverted and walks out of the, the warehouse under the dock and gets in the car, every sound that he hears is twisted. And there are some backwards sounds, the tugboat whistle in the, in the background, and there are a few things that are reversed, but mostly it's forward sounds that are manipulated to sound not like the reversed, but like they're, they're not operating in our version of the arrow of time. I think we all really went down a rabbit hole of thinking about what is time, and I just found all that very interesting. What is time really? And really the only thing in physics that determines a forward direction or a direction of time, what's called the arrow of time, is heat transference. Heat always goes from warm to cold. It never goes in the other direction. That's why when the protagonist's car blows up, it instead freezes because his arrow of time is going in the opposite direction. But on the other hand, we've had fun with it and tried to just make it exciting and cool and do what sound editors do. And we had a huge canvas to, to play on. We're, we're in so many different countries and cities and, and specific cities, not just generic European or Northern European cities, but specific places. And we wanted great sounds from all those places, from India and Northern Europe and England, and had friends all over the world who contributed sounds, who recorded for me, recorded locally. And yeah, it was a wonderful project, great fun to work on. So you and director Nolan, you've done seven films together now, and three of those films, uh, you won Oscars for your sound work. So obviously there's a lot of trust in your relationship. Um, when you sat down to talk about the sound of Tenant, did he have a specific plan of attack? Did he want you to start with world building in reality, or did he just want you to hop right into the inverted sounds and figure out what that was going to be? We never really sat down and talked about it. We had a couple of brief conversations before he started shooting, and then when I started getting cut scenes, about the time they finished shooting, then I just wailed away on it. I just worked on whatever I got and would send it to the picture department, and Chris would give me notes which is how we've generally worked. I just start and send him sounds and rather than discuss things in any theoretical manner or philosophical manner or try to think of rules that apply to the movie, I just started. And then if I went down a wrong path, then Chris would let me know. And if I was going down the right path, I wouldn't hear anything back. So it's a good way to work, I think, because he wants the best of other people. He doesn't want people to just follow orders and do what they're told. He wants their ideas. And from those ideas, he selects the ideas that he likes. And But I definitely started working on the inverted sounds early just to try to wrap my head around what they would ultimately be like. And of course, we tried the reverse sound route, like I said before. And, and that yeah, that was quite a long evolution of some of the specific sounds we were still working on right up until the end to try to get something different, like with the explosions and really trying to find some other feeling that we could squeeze out of the sound. So it was an exciting process because you there are no rules to follow and you're really just going on gut instinct. And <clears throat> luckily we had a, a nice length of time to mix so we uh, had time to live with our ideas and we could better refine 
what was working and what wasn't working. And we had had a great deal of time doing several tent mixes and the track was a real evolution. And I think by the end of the mix, we had explored every path that any of us could think of. And I'm sure if we had worked for another month, we maybe could have come up with more, but it felt like we really pursued all the leads that we could think of. So it feels like you must have done a lot of custom recordings for this film. I mean, you can't really go into a library and look up a sound for a car driving inverted or inverted gunshots. I know that you were working during the pandemic, but were you able to go out and do custom recordings? I mean, besides the Foley, like, were you able to go out and record things? We recorded some cars. We recorded the vehicles and those car chases. And a thousand oddball things. Our ADR supervisor, Dave Bach, recorded all the group outside, which would really match really well. We were able to record the group before the COVID lockdown. We didn't do it outside because of that. We did it outside for the acoustic advantages. It just sits right in the track. It works so beautifully. We recorded a bunch of stuff, as I said, Friends of mine overseas recorded thing. We recorded the uh, racing boat. Elam Hoffman recorded that in London during the time they were shooting it. We did firearms. It wasn't like we had to invent reels and reels upon inverted sounds. It's a lot of practical, just nuts and bolts sound editing where you try to define and make clear every environment you're in, every locale. I really feel like sound can conjure up other sense memories in your mind. If you're in a machinery space, there's a couple of scenes on Sator's yacht where we're in a lower deck machinery space where there might be generators or other equipment running bow thrusters you'd hear through the hull and whatnot. And you really wanted that sound or I wanted that feeling rather of you can almost smell the hot oil. You'd hear kind of metal plates rattling a little bit as the machinery is running. And so I just really tried to make tangible in a multi-sense kind of way, if possible, through sound, every locale, every city, every town, every situation the characters found themselves in, which is basic sound editing and what all of us try to do. But it really started to become clearer to me that in my experience with sound, that when I hear something, oftentimes it'll bring up a smell memory or a sight memory or some other thing that's associated with that sound. And if you find the right combinations of sounds, it really can make an illusion of a three-dimensional world with the feeling of wind on your cheek or the feeling of a slippery metal floor or the feeling of being on a busy city street in the spring. We all just worked until we felt like every sequence, every shot had a purpose and had a sound that represented that shot. And as I said, it's a huge canvas. So we had a lot of environments to play with and we're never in any place long enough to get tired of it. The movie is so quickly paced that it always felt like we were jumping to another continent within a few minutes. Yeah, it was an exciting project to work on and overlapped into the COVID lockdown by three months. So we were able to also figure out different ways of working and had to come up with different strategies for getting the temp mixes done. And usually shows of this scale and magnitude, you just don't take anything home for security reasons. But we all did. We had to get the project finished and I don't think we missed a beat. We just 
sailed right into that. We had a couple of weeks where it was becoming pretty evident that LA was going to be locked down. And Andrew Bach, who has worked with me for like 20 years, was great at figuring out with Warner Brothers Engineering how to accomplish this and how to get everybody the equipment they needed at home. Then we got letters from Warner Brothers lawyers to go to the lot for a couple of months and mix under strict protocols that they devised. And I think everyone was happy to have a distraction from the whole, what was then the brand new lockdown world. We all had a place to go in the day and we all had a focus. And I think all of us really just having that one primary focus in our lives in that time, because it wasn't a lot of other stuff going on, it actually helped the film because we were all probably putting a lot more thought and effort and energy and obsessive creative thought into what can make the movie better. So in one of the sequences early in the film, uh, they break into the Freeport storage building. Uh, They crashed that big jet into it. And then later in the film, they come back to that same place during that same event, but we see it from the inverted perspective. So what were some of your challenges in revisiting that sequence and playing it from the inverted perspective? The sequences aren't parallel. They aren't the exact moments in each sequence. So it wasn't a matter of having to be faithful to the way something was treated earlier. Although we do briefly see in the jet crashing scene, two people running to the van with a gurney and getting in and driving off, and they're running backwards. If you look for it, there is that, which wouldn't make sense the first time you see it, but when you see them in the second iteration of that scene, the inverted iteration, then it makes sense terminology so difficult with this movie because <laughs> backwards inverted it's uh, the forwards running inversion of the jet scene sort of ends with the jet crashing into the building and the inverted version of the scene begins after the jet has crashed in and builds up to the plane kind of reassembling itself so it was really just a matter of affecting what we see and trying to make that inverted world out into which they run. Uh, firemen putting the fires out and emergency workers and just try to make it as lively and crazy and surreal and psychedelic as we could. And we just, in any timeline that was parallel, we did try to make a nod to that. And the film's really hard to talk about, I'm realizing, because it, it's like a Swiss watch. All the pieces kind of work together. And in thinking about it, I don't think we worked any harder on the inverted sequences than we did on the non-inverted sequences. Every shot was as important as every other shot. There's so much potential for chaos in those forward-running inverted moments. Uh, Like at the end of the film, when they go to the hypo center, you have non-inverted and inverted people in one space, and the things are happening in the same event on a different sort of timetable or timeline. I I don't know how to describe it. Chris is so brilliant. To imagine all that, shoot much of it practically and have half the troops running backwards. They all train to operate their weapons and run backwards and walk backwards. You know, we're presented with this Swiss watch of a movie that was so interlocking and complex and started working on it at the same time we were all trying to figure it out. And I had read the script like two or three times and thought I had it more or less worked out in my head. But it took a bit longer. I mean, I think, I think you get the, the basic 
gist of the story. But I think on a second or third viewing, you really start to understand all the parallels and all the switchbacks and just the fact that he was able to plot us out, shoot it on schedule and know what he needed with practical effects. There weren't a lot of visual effects. There were some, but there weren't an enormous amount. And a lot of those visual effects were little details that they added to the practical effects. That's so crazy. I mean, for the ending, because they have those concrete structures that would blow up and then reform, and then they would blow up again. It's really all about POV, and you have to be locked into who you're looking at and know whether they're inverted or not. So that was another trick that we had to adhere to. In that scene, for instance, you got to watch the color of the armband, the character you are looking at or whose POV you are in to know whether you're inverted or not. So it's, yeah, it is, it's very trippy. Yeah. Very crazy. I had to rewatch the ending because I got lost there for a minute with everything that was happening. I was wondering, how is Cat on the boat without the respirator? Is she like non-inverted Cat in the future? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we had big charts and diagrams (laughs) trying to figure it out. We tried to visualize it, you know. I think it's one of those movies that you could really study and pick it apart for a long time and come up with a lot of different theories and ideas. And a lot of them that I've heard, they got a grain of truth or at least of valid viewpoints. I think in the movie, they even say, don't try to think about it. Just go with it. Just feel it. That's what we try to do. So what would you say your most challenging sequence for sound was? I mean, there's just so many opportunities for like really interesting sound design here. Uh, Did you have a favorite one or a most challenging one? And what went into it? Um... I think everything was equally challenging. I mean, the jet sequence was challenging, the jet crash into the building, because we didn't want it to be too overwhelmingly loud or oppressive, and we wanted to get some music in there, too. So we had to kind of figure out what logical plan we might apply to allow us to make the scene exciting without making it be overbearing. The end battle was quite challenging because of all the multiple inverted, non-inverted events that were happening sometimes simultaneously. And that was a scene that did have a bit of visual effects work with bullet hits and so on that kept coming in. But understanding the logic of who we're looking at was sometimes complicated. I mean, I found it difficult to know sometimes which way I was supposed to be going as an audience member. So once we had nailed that down and figured out correctly in any given shot, which arrow of time we were meant to be following, we tried to exaggerate that sonically. So we would try to use more crazy inverted bullet ricos or gunshots or bullet hits just to make that more precise. And then Ludwig, the composer, came up with a really clever musical sort of terminology for the inverted scenes. So there are sonic hints throughout that sequence which direction we're meant to be following in that moment. That was a very complicated sequence. Yeah, you know, the music really helped me as an audience member to understand that the helicopters are landing and they're inverted at that moment. You know, the the music was definitely a key ingredient there. Yeah, Ludwig's score helped a lot, and it's an awesome score. It's so exciting, and I think it really hits the nail on the head. The prologue was another scene. The opening opera house sequence was complicated in that we worked on it for a long time. Initially, it was intended to be essentially a long trailer. The prologue was released Christmas 2019. So we worked on that sequence for quite a while and and then worked on it some more once we began on the feature. They had added some footage into the prologue, so it wasn't quite the same. So we 
made those adjustments and every scene had its own challenges. I'm trying to think of a simple scene that was challenging. Well, the torture scene in the train yard was something we worked on for a long time to try to find a sound for pain. And creaky freight trains kind of fill that bill. They squeak, they moan, they groan. There are deep, low sounds. There are screechy sounds. There are startling sounds. So that was fun to create a score using the trains. And then we get into India, and we really wanted to make that as lively and as tangible a place as we could. The Indian recordings were fabulous. My friend Vijay Rathanam did a lot of recording for me in India for those scenes. It was a sonic feast, and in that way, it was so much fun for somebody that loves sound to work on, because we always had uh, terrific challenges, and we wanted it to feel real. There was not a lot of trying to just make stuff out of whole cloth and toss it in. We really wanted it to feel like real places because the story is so fanciful and unreal in a way. So we wanted everything to really feel anchored in the recognizable world to make the story a little bit more tangible and acceptable to people. We almost strictly used production sound and Chris likes production sound, even the noise of the world, which we're never without. And so we always had the production track on, just added center channel groundedness. And um, I think we only looped a couple of lines, literally a handful of lines, because by the time we would have done any looping, COVID had locked everything down, so it made looping quite difficult. Although I don't think we would have done any more regardless of COVID. But I doubt if we would have looped any more than we did anyway. So that helps, I think. It helps to have that production track to glue the voices in somewhere into the track and and then we put all our sounds around that to detail and highlight and those sounds that we added generally overwhelmed the sound of the production air but having the production air there really helped i think to ground the movie so richard just one final question here um what are you most proud of in terms of sound on tenant there's not one specific thing i love the whole track of the film to me it's all of a piece I'm proud of the whole thing. I'm proud of any given moment. I feel like we worked it as hard as we could and literally tried out every idea that we could think of and come up with. And I'm just tremendously proud of the entire film, beginning to end, and so happy and thankful that I got to work on it. Richard, thank you so much for sharing your time and your story with me. It was really great to talk to you about your work on Tenet. My pleasure, Jennifer. Now let's turn our attention to the MPSE-nominated sound editing work on Wonder Woman 1984, directed by Patty Jenkins. I had the chance to sit down once again with Richard and his co-supervising sound editor, Jimmy Boyle, who was working on Wonder Woman 1984 at Warner Brothers Sound's Delane Lee facility with his London-based team. Richard and Jimmy collaborated across time zones, and so here we'll talk about what that did for the film creatively. We'll also talk about their approach to Wonder Woman's signature sounds, like updating her lasso and designing sound for her newly learned abilities of flying and making objects disappear. So in Wonder Woman 1984, superheroine Diana Prince, a.k.a. Wonder Woman, she's living in Washington, D.C., working at the Smithsonian, when a magical stone called the Dream Stone shows up. The stone grants wishes, but of course she can't get something for nothing, so each wish granted comes at a personal cost. And so the struggling businessman, Max Lord, he steals the stone and he wishes to become the stone. And this gives him the power to grant wishes, but it costs him his health. 
In a quest to stave off death, he broadcasts a message to the world that everyone should wish for something that they desire, and in return he leeches their collective life force. It's a fantastical idea, but in keeping with the natural tone of the first film, director Jenkins asked the sound team to maintain a sense of realism. Richard and Jimmy, thanks so much for joining me. So there's a lot of sound design in this film to talk about. Um, first, can you tell me about Wonder Woman's lasso? That sound was established in Patty's first Wonder Woman film, but how were you able to expand on that sound for the sequel? I began a little bit before Jimmy. He was on another movie. But we both worked on it. I had a first crack at it. Patty wanted the feeling of the lasso in the first film, but not be slavish to it. In other words, elaborate upon it a little bit, make it a little more interesting, but keep it in the same world. Initially, it was pretty much just electrical whooshes, if that makes any sense, sparky whooshes. And then Jimmy and his team did a lot of work on it to add a lot of detail. And of course, as the visual effects came in, it became more and more elaborate and more and more supple. And we wanted to sound all those moves and really articulate the sound. So it was quite a long process. I think we worked on it almost till the end, Jimmy, didn't we? Yeah, it was definitely developed on and went through stages. And it became a combination, as Richard said, of this physical kind of whip, but then there was electrical elements. We played around with choral elements, and then we did sort of strange Doppler flicks with those things, and then they ended up sounding almost like whip sounds, so that's quite cool. We messed with those to get some more movement and articulacy from it. It was a combination of all of those things, really. So in this film, Wonder Woman comes into her other powers, uh, like she makes Steve's jet turn invisible. How did you handle the sound for that? I guess the way that we intimated that it goes invisible is by making a big moment of the instant that it turns invisible. Beyond that, it has subtle jet sounds to it, but we wanted to make a big event of its disappearance. So as you recall from the film, the jet's taxiing towards us, speeding up, speeding up, speeding up. He throttles up. Jet gets very loud. It zooms overhead and straight up and then disappears. And we basically did that with the sound. It shockingly disappears because it's very loud going over. It goes right over their heads. And there's a beat of silence on the sky, which sells the idea that it's disappeared. And then I think the following cut is them inside the cockpit. From there, it was subtle jet sounds and ripping air and things. We made bits and pieces of movement out of lightning and thunder rips and stuff that we manipulated to, to give the sense of the thing had become invisible. But also, there's kind of a big handover with music at that point as well. So it becomes quite romantic and balletic and stuff. Once we get into the whole fireworks and that kind of shifted anyway at that point afterwards. But yeah, it was good fun. It was their love story moment during the fireworks scene. Yeah, very music heavy. But Jimmy and his team did lovely fireworks that were indistinct and low and muffled. They were very kind of romantic fireworks, I thought, Jimmy. Yeah, definitely. I think that was Patty's brief early on, wasn't it, Richard? I think obviously we want to describe what's going on here, but at the same time, once we get up there and get into that sequence, it's about those two and it needs to play on the romance and the music. And for the processing, were you doing EQ envelopes so you could gradually intensify the processing? Or what was your approach to making the sound go from a normal jet to an invisible jet? We definitely did a bit of that. That was definitely an element within the jet going away that was exactly that. It was a designed EQ sweep that sort of took us down. And we sort of tried to tail out with bits of tails of jets that we could ripple and filter and add the tiniest bit of thunder going away, that kind of thing. But it, there was definitely a sweep on that. That was part of what we wanted to try and go for for that moment. 
The other thing that Wonder Woman figures out is how to fly, right? It's not magical flying. Even though flying is totally a superpower, uh, it feels very natural and in character for her. She doesn't have like the supernatural feel. Everything about her feels very natural. So how did you handle her flying ability and her discovery of that? We kind of left it to the audience's imagination. If you notice in that first scene, she takes off using her lasso and she kind of figures out, she moves her hands in a certain way. She can bank and change altitude. And so she kind of learns how to fly. She's in this buffeting high altitude wind. So consequently, when she moves her hands, we would accentuate the kind of buffety wind as if she's creating turbulence. And she gradually learns in the course of the sequence how to control her flight. We didn't want to make a big deal sonically out of her flying, hearing a constant whistle wind or something. It started out that way, but became gentler. Yeah, it, it was something that we definitely felt should be natural, but powerful. I think there's quite a lot of low description. We weren't going for lots of high frequencies. I think it, that was a direction from Patty as well, that she wanted a description of it, but it'd be natural with good physicality and, and make it weighty and make it nice, but it's something that, that wouldn't be too overplayed or, or interfere with what's going on in the scene, which again becomes quite a bit big with music. Yeah, Patty has a really strong sense of how sound plays in her movies, especially emphasis and de-emphasis on certain frequencies, and to keep things in, in a mellow pocket that is not anything too bright. Which is great, because I think that's how we felt as well, Richard, that there are frequencies that really bite your ear, and if you have too much of that for too long in films, it can become quite tiring, and I think that was the last thing that we would want to do. Patty was definitely very sensitive to that, and she briefed us quite early on that she was sensitive to that, and she likes the weight, but not so much. Very shrill, kind of higher frequencies all the time, and certain things would catch her ear, but it's a good thing, because when you get big and powerful and loud, you don't want to tear people's heads off. And did you get to record any new and interesting whooshes for that? Or were you pulling them from libraries? Where did all of your wind movement sounds come from? I think I did record some. Most of the recording we did, or at least that I did, and I think that you did too, Jimmy, were elements for sound design. They weren't sounds to just go directly into the film. We did record some horses early on for the sequence in the beginning. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I think we did a bit of an underwater record to use at the beginning of the film, but also for mainly for the cheetah fight at the end where they fall into the water. We recorded some stuff there. And then lots of spot effects and things that could potentially be left for Foley. I bought some old IBM keyboards and that kind of stuff that we recorded to use for sort of ambiences within the lab and some of the offices and that kind of stuff. And definitely designed lots of new elements for the things that you're asking about, like the, the winds and the wishes, as Richard said. Yeah, we, it was an interesting process working on the film because um, me and my team cut the first temp dub here in LA and... Um, most of Jimmy's team was still on another show. He put his dialogue folks on early and Foley. Jimmy shot the Foley. In, in fact, the, I was actually finishing a film in LA and came to see Richard and Richard called me and said, we're going to do a spot. So the first spot in the session was with Richard and I both out in LA and Richard had been on some time then. Some of my team in London came on to look after mainly like ADR and Foley. Then we went to England did the temp dub and from that point on, Jimmy's team handled everything. I was working back here in LA with Andrew Bach, my right-hand guy. He helps me with everything. The two of us were back here. We figured out a way to safely utilize the same sessions. I think we had a Dropbox or something. Yeah, that was good. We got a server set up at Warner's Network really well. And the good thing with the time difference as well is we would work 
obviously, and then have a system that Andrew did where at the end of the day, we could put everything that we wanted back up on the server and then Richard could pull down whatever he wanted to work on. And that was quite a good way of working. The handoff was about 11 or 12 in the morning, but we always all had access to all the sessions unless someone was working on it. And there was a lot of trading back and forth. And I think that strengthened the sound of the film, just having so many creative hands on it. With Jimmy and I as the guiding creative forces, I would open a session that I had last worked on and see that somebody had done some really cool work on it. It was a constant additive process of addition, improvement. And if Jimmy or I didn't like something that somebody put in, then, you know, it was guidance with a lot of free territory for the editors to roam in and get creative. So it was an excellent collaboration, I think. Jimmy and I, very similar aesthetic taste, I think, in sound. We have same wavelength. And so from early on, whoever was free did something. We shared responsibilities. However, they did all the Foley in England. And as Jimmy said, they did a lot of Foley in the natural world. I think he did some footsteps in a bay, right, Jimmy, for the horses in the beginning? Yeah, absolutely. There's all sorts of bits and pieces. I kind of like to do that a lot. If there's things that you feel would be better recorded in that real space is to try and capture those things. And one of the briefs early on, Patsy told us she really likes to keep as much of the production sound as possible. And really, if there's lots of Foley going in, it really should be just to augment. And that's just really helpful to know as well, because you shoot different styles of Foley for different movies and different directors' tastes. And so we knew quite early on that we really needed to just make sure whatever we were doing felt like it was production. So that was what we went out to achieve. And I think we achieved it. Yeah, I think that was the goal with everything, even the more fanciful sounds like the lasso. It has to be grounded in reality in some way. We wanted to ground all that stuff in real sounds and not synthesize very much. Yes, yeah, absolutely. So let's look at Max Lord's broadcast to the world. It feels like you were able to really have some fun in this sequence. There was such cool design work in there. So Max is sending out his broadcast, and it's playing in all these different locations around the world through different TVs. And as the shot moves from one location to another, there's different processing and spatialization to match that. Uh, Additionally, we hear all the wishes that are coming back to Max. So can you Tell me about your um, work on that sequence. Like, what were some of your creative challenges or opportunities when designing for that bit? There's two things within that. It was exactly what you ask about in the treatments within the spaces. Richard and I tried to do in the cutting room pre-attempt mix to get an idea that we could play to Patty. But as you could imagine, you could spend hours on, on a sequence like that in the mix theatre. Gary Rizzo, I think, sort of liked it and said, look, let's not get rid of this. Let's not just use this for attempt purposes. I kind of want to build on this. So Richard and I did the treatments on it and then Gary took it further. But a lot of it was kept and, and Gary just sort of made bits better and we'd play with it more and exaggerated some of the different places. But then there was also obviously the wishes. These people around the world that are making these wishes. And that was something that Richard started on early and got guys in LA to record things. And with that, we just kind of followed on from it, all of us. And if we had an ADR session with crowd guys or we just had ADR sessions, we had some time left over, we'd grab all of us in, anyone that spoke another language, and just do loads of these things that we could use and treat. And so they become very layered. There's a scene after that where Wonder Woman, she tries to stop Max. So Max is still doing his broadcast and Wonder Woman goes in to stop him. Uh, That scene must have been so tough to mix because you have all of those people's wishing voices and this big wind and big music and Max is yelling and Wonder Woman is talking softly. How did you wrangle that scene at a submission? Yeah, that was a very tough scene. That was one of the tougher ones, wasn't it, Richard? Yeah, it yeah. Was because of all that you said, Jennifer, it kind of all needed to be there, too, to make its point. So it was a really delicate balance. 
Gary Rizzo and, and Gilbert Lake, the mixers, really walked a fine line there because there's a lot of emphasis on the voices. You have to hear Max, obviously, but you have to also give a nod to the wind and Wonder Woman's trying to stop Max at that point, so we need to hear a little bit of the lasso. So it was a very fine line to walk and um, a lot of revisions. I think it was tricky, for sure. Yeah, definitely. Like so many other things within the film, it, it was great working with Gilly and Gary and myself and Richard and the rest of our teams and stuff. I mean, it was, it was really nice where we were. We're all at Delaney Lee at Warner Brothers as well because we had the cut rooms upstairs in the mixing theatre. We were up and down, backwards and forwards, but it, it felt very much like we were a team as well. We would do some stuff and play it to Gary and play it to, to Gilly, as you expect they would do. That's the process. But at the same time, it was very involved and back and forth, and they would chuck us ideas, and we'd say, what about this? Specifically, that area was one of those places where we'd all come up with ideas to how we would make that best work with what we needed to try and achieve to tell the story. Another scene I loved for its creative opportunities was that second fight between Wonder Woman and Barbara. So Barbara has transformed into Cheetah and Wonder Woman is wearing Asterius armor. There's so much great stuff in there, like electrical elements and water elements and animal elements. Um, Can you tell me about that scene and some of your favorite sounds for it? We had lots of factors and things to play with in that, like the high wire stuff and the cheetah vocalisation. One of the ones in there that was quite involved was the cheetah vocalisation, which ended up being a combination of sourced and sampled big cat. I think it was maybe a puma with little bits of tiger stuff in there, some pitched, morphed, moved. And then we got the the whole performance again from Kristen Wiig, which we morphed between the two. And that was good fun. That's hard though. I always find those things are the hard, when you're trying to do that human into animal and keep it feeling like it is real, that's, that's difficult. And then there's the suit. Richard and I had some fun with that, coming up with the different elements. And that was one where it needed to be articulate. But Patty said, I want it to sound as big and as heavy and as powerful as we possibly can. At the same time, it's got a lot of moving parts, which in some ways move very fast. We needed to keep it low and big and powerful. And that, that was a challenge, but I think it was good. That whole sequence, again, was Richard and I kind of scratching our heads and trying things and coming up with ideas and tweaking and developing, basically. The armor needed to sound like it was the thickness of a manhole cover, but it was obviously very graceful and very, very articulated and there were joints in it, but it needed to sound much thicker and heavier than it actually was just to convey that sense of impregnability. It was definitely tough as well because it was that thing of it needing to sound graceful but heavy but metallic but not some sort of old rusty thing. It needed to sound beautiful because it looked beautiful but at the same time be very powerful and heavy. Yeah, have a slight ring to it when it got hit. The armor was, we worked on that for quite a while. That was a tricky one. Yeah, and then the visual effects kind of came in late. They changed, they kept evolving, but the finals came in, as I recall, quite late. A lot of detail work with the swinging around on the high-tension wires and sparks and impacts between the two of them as they fight. That scene just needed to sound impressive and big and a monumental fight between two super beings. I think in the end, for the wings opening and closing, we got some different metals and things. I probably shouldn't tell you this because the decorators at Warner Brothers wouldn't be very happy, but there's these big old Victorian radiators in the back stairwell that we were running things up and down to try to get movement off, you know, that, that we could obviously manipulate ourselves to be as heavy or light as we wanted to. 
that was another thing that we played with to try and get something that you know sampling stuff it's great but sometimes it is really nice to just get that real performance into it to get some some other elements that are interesting yeah that was going to be uh, my next question so what metal did you find to best represent this armor like what gave you the right sort of tonality and heaviness victorian cast armor <laughs> a warner brothers delaney radiator yeah <laughs> no we, it was it was a combination of all sorts a lot of different kinds of metals yeah and and i think probably not non-literal stuff that we've done in there as well for like the powers and stuff i remember when she takes flight we'd done sort of powerful movements that were not linked to anything that was literal for for what she was wearing you know i think the higher wire stuff we played around with as well i definitely remember we messed around with a record we did of like a, a huge spring that we twanged to give us some of those feelings of those wires and the, the sounds sort of resonating through them as they're swinging around and we did some um we had a, a long piece of wire on one of the warner brothers shooting stages which are vast and tied it to one of the um, catwalks and then we're able to swing it and tension it and then twang it and do a lot of stuff with it in a really large qu- uh, quiet space you don't just want the whoosh of the wire you want the kind of twangy quality of big thick cable metal cable as it pivots around and swings there are a yeah, lot of delicate yeah, sounds definitely. in there to convey that idea of them hanging and swinging on the wires so i have burned through my half hour with you guys and i just have one more question for you um what do you wish other sound <laughs> pros knew about your work on wonder woman 1984 I would just like them to be absorbed in the film first. And then if they see it a second time, go back for a second viewing to check out the sound. I think, you know, it's a very emotional film. It's got a lot of warmth and heart. And if we've done our jobs, I think that the audience will get drawn into that and get totally enveloped yeah, in the yeah. world and, and just accept the the sounds they hear, even the superpower sounds, as just a given. That's why we really tried to stick to sounds of the world and natural sounds and building upon those rather than creating a thing that is that sound. It's the number of elements that through a lot of trial and error we found the right levels for and both Jimmy and I did a lot of pre-dubbing in that sense of, you know, having a lot of elements and finding the right sound within that large group of elements for something. And it was always with the emphasis upon, yeah, I could imagine hearing that in the real world. So you don't want to take the audience out of the fantasy, out of the story for a second. That's the biggest challenge in movies like this, because there's so much crazy stuff going on. And yet you don't want it to sound crazy. You want it to sound like, yeah, I I can imagine hearing that. I hear that it's happening in that spot, in that particular space. I recognize that it's in an acoustic space. I hear the reverb of it. Um, Yeah, I think you're right. I think that whenever I go to the cinema, I always sit that first time and watch the film and enjoy the movie. And I think the only time I get pulled out of the film is if something's not describing something well enough or not very good. Or if it's really, really good, but then that's probably just me thinking to myself, how did they do that? That's cool. But yeah, I think I absolutely agree with what Rich is saying. I think first and foremost is making it cool and telling the story. Awesome. Well, Richard, Jimmy, thank you guys so much for taking some time out to have this chat about Wonder Woman 1984 with me. Pleasure, Jennifer. Pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. If you're looking for more podcasts about sound, check out these uh, greetings from our friends in the audio podcasting community, and uh, you'll find them all at audiopodcast.org. Hey, everybody. This is Tim from Tonebender's Sound Design Podcast. 
We've been on an awesome run of interviewing and talking to the people behind the best-sounding movies of the last year. Films like Jesus and the Black Messiah, The Trial of the Chicago 7, Wonder Woman 1984, Nomadland, The Sound of Metal, Mank, The Dissident, and even Tenant. If you want to hear these stories and more, check them all out wherever you find your podcasts or at ToneBendersPodcast.com. Hi, this is Michael Helms, host of the Location Sound Podcast. My recent guest is production sound mixer Byron Mayer, based out of Copenhagen, Denmark. We talk about recording sound on the feature film Torbos, the official Oscar entry for South Africa. Check out the latest episode. That's it for this episode. A big thanks to Jennifer Walden for doing the interviews and to Richard King and Jimmy Boyle for being on the show. Be sure to subscribe to the Soundfact podcast at asoundfact.com slash podcast. Thanks a lot for listening and see you next time. Take care. <laughs>